You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan, here on this 25th day of January 2013. Welcome to episode 255 of the Corbett Report podcast, Shoulders of Giants, Lysander Spooner. Last Saturday, January 19th, 2013, marked the occasion of the 205th birthday of Lysander Spooner, or as he is more commonly known amongst most of the American and indeed the world public, Lysander who? Yes, unfortunately, we have, as a civilization, devolved to the point where we not only revel in our delight of knowledge of pop culture trivia, but we also revel in our ignorance of the intellectual giants that have preceded us, much to our detriment. Because although I'm sure we are all familiar with the dictum that those who do not know history are doomed to repeat it, I wonder if we have truly, really internalized the meaning and implications of that statement because it strikes me as absolutely self-evident that there have been people in similar situations facing similar problems as we face today in previous historical eras, and our ignorance of those people, how they dealt with the situation, and what they brought to the table is, again, to our detriment. We are absolutely very much possibly at risk for what we don't know and what we remain in ignorance about of our own free will. Because certainly there are an abundance of materials on many thinkers, including Lysander Spooner, that it would best serve us to take a look at. Because as I say, again, we are facing problems that have been faced by generations in the past, and it is important that we understand how others have thought about these. So let's pick up today from another dictum, Uh, which was at the very least originated, perhaps originated, there is some debate about it, but uh, that can at least be traced back to John of Salisbury, writing in 1159 in the Metalogicon, where he wrote, We are like dwarfs sitting on the shoulders of giants. We see more, and things that are more distant than they did, not because our sight is superior or because we are taller than they, but because they raise us up, and by their great stature, add to ours. End quote. Well, that is an inspiring quote for us to begin uh, our exploration today, and since it has been that that occasion of the 205th birthday of Lysander Spooner just a few days ago, although it is an arbitrary and meaningless occasion, it is still an excuse at any rate to take a closer look at this very important thinker from our past, who was a very interesting person all around. A, not only a lawyer, but also a, a, a thinker, an entrepreneur, uh, a, a deist, an abolitionist, an anarchist, uh, a very much a free thinker who very much influenced a lot of generations that came after him and did shape the world around him to, to a certain extent and, and did shape the discourse that was happening in the early days of the American Republic. A very, very interesting figure indeed, and it is certainly interesting how this is one of those figures who does not figure prominently, if at all, in any standard American history textbooks. 
Why is that? Well, perhaps he had ideas that are dangerous to the power establishment. And so once again, perhaps we are best served by sitting on the shoulders of this particular giant and seeing how far we can see into the problems of our own day and age. So let's start at the beginning, and why don't we go back to the early childhood of Lysander Spooner. We'll take a look at some of the biographical details of his early life that may have shaped this freethinker and firebrand who did have such radically different ideas than many of those around him. And although we can't always look to the biography of a thinker to understand why they thought what they did, at the very least we can get some hints as to how Lysander Spooner began to develop his unorthodox ideas from his early life. So we're going to turn to a, an audio series called The Libertarian Tradition, hosted by Jeff Riggenbach, and it is a free audio download at Mises.org. There are many different additions to this series, but we're going to listen to the one called A Toast to Lysander Spooner. So once again, of course, the link to download that will be available in the show notes for today's episode, so I hope you will go and download that in its entirety. But let's take a, a listen to the beginning of this Toast to Lysander Spooner, where the host talks a little bit about the early family life of Lysander Spooner. Lysander Spooner was the direct descendant of William Spooner, who had moved from England to Plymouth Colony in the 1630s, during the second decade of the colony's existence. Lysander Spooner's paternal grandfather had served as a captain in the Revolutionary War. In the early 1820s, a very young Lysander Spooner received a proposition from his father— when Lysander turned sixteen in 1824, he could leave home and try to make his own way in the world. Or, if he preferred, he could remain on the farm for another nine years, until he was twenty-five. During this time he would help his father, and his father, in return, would provide food, lodging, and what their official legal contract described as good educational advantages. Lysander chose option two, and spent another nine years on the farm after his sixteenth birthday. He left at last in 1833, at the age of twenty-five. And so it was that the young Lysander Spooner was introduced at an earlier age than most, I would venture to say, into the finer points of contract law. So perhaps it should not be surprising to know that Lysander did eventually gravitate towards becoming a lawyer, and to that end he studied under the prominent politicians and lawyers of his age, John Davis and Charles Allen, and the experience of studying under these, uh, these towering figures of his day and age should have been enough, at least in his own eyes, to qualify him to sit as a lawyer in the state of Massachusetts, but according to the laws of Massachusetts at the time, in fact, he was disqualified from practicing as a lawyer because he did not have a college degree. As Richard Grove uh, outlined in the opening monologue to episode 53 of the Always Invaluable Peace Revolution podcast at peacerevolution.org, however, that did not stop Lysander Spooner from actually becoming a lawyer in Massachusetts. Lysander Spooner was born January 19th, 1808, died May 14, 1887, was an American individualist, anarchist, political philosopher, deist, abolitionist, and supporter of the labor movement, a legal theorist, and entrepreneur of the 19th century. 
Spooner advocated what he called natural law or the science of justice, wherein acts of initiatory coercion against individuals and their property were considered illegal, but the so-called criminal acts that violated only man-made legislation were not. His activism began with his career as a lawyer, which itself violated Massachusetts law. Spooner had studied law under the prominent lawyers and politicians, John Davis and Charles Allen, but he had never attended college. According to the state laws of Massachusetts, college graduates were required to study with an attorney for three years, while non-graduates were required to do so for five years. With the encouragement of his legal mentors, Spooner set up his practice in Worcester, Massachusetts after only three years, openly defying the courts. He saw the three-year privilege for college graduates as a state-sponsored discrimination against the poor and also providing a monopoly income to those who met their requirements. He argued that, quote, no one has yet ever dared advocate in direct terms so monstrous a principle as that the rich ought to be protected by law from the competition of the poor, end quote. In 1836, the legislature abolished the restriction. He opposed all licensing requirements for lawyers, doctors, or anyone else that was prevented from being employed by such requirements. To prevent a person from doing business with a person without a professional license, he saw as a violation of the natural right to contract. Well, at the very least, Spooner showed from his earliest days that he was not one to back down from a fight. And uh, in fact, yes, he was successful in eventually getting that law struck down so that uh, it was legal for himself and others like him to practice law in the state of Massachusetts. Although, of course, his greater quest to completely deregulate lawyers and, and doctors and other, state, uh, other professions that the state would like to interfere in, well, he was unsuccessful in that, and we can see that, of course, from our own day and age, but it is still interesting to see that that type of fight, uh, well, at least he was willing to take up that fight and to, uh, to actually throw himself into the mix, a lawyer basically litigating for his right to be a lawyer. Um, quite an interesting situation. And it was certainly not the only controversial issue that Lysander Spooner was to insert himself into the middle of. In fact, whether or not he attracted those types of controversial issues or whether he thrust himself into them, at any rate, he found himself in them, in the midst of them quite a bit. And of course, his, his own religious views and his uh, rather vociferous and strident uh, defenses of his deism was something of a scandal to a lot of people back in the devoutly Christian era that, in which he was living. But, uh, but that being what it was, Perhaps uh, he was not as successful as a lawyer. His law practice was not so successful because he was so outspoken on issues like that. And so it was in the 1840s that he came to try something, his hat, uh, something completely different, try on a completely different hat. And in this case, nothing to do with law per se, but actually to become an entrepreneur in the spirit of the great American tradition and living the great American dream. Lysander Spooner saw an urgent need in the market, and he sought to fill it. And what need was that? Well, the need for efficient and cheap delivery of letters, which the U.S. Postal Service most assuredly was not fulfilling at that time. Today's topic is Lysander Spooner and the American Letter Mail Company. You may not have ever heard about 
Lysander Spooner. He's a very interesting guy, though. In 1808, he was born, which makes him about the same age as Robert E. Lee and Abraham Lincoln. We don't know a lot about his early life. He became a lawyer in 1833, but in 1844, he started a company called the American Letter Mail Company to deliver letters between several cities on the East Coast. And the reason he did this was that in 1844, the post office was charging 14 and a half cents on average to deliver a letter. That doesn't seem like a lot, but at the time, coins were made out of silver. And 14 and a half cents was equivalent to about three and a half grams of silver. Now today, the price of silver fluctuates quite a bit, but it's in the general neighborhood of $30 an ounce over the last couple of years, which means that in today's dollars, it cost about $3.50 to deliver a, a letter in 1844. That's obviously a lot more than what we pay now, so where was that extra money going? Well, in a large, to a large extent, it was going to the politically connected. And the way this works was that politicians would give special treatment to certain people or certain companies in respect to the post office. So a transportation company that had political allies might get to deliver the mail. Or a family member of a politician might get one of the comfortable jobs that at the post office where there was very little risk of losing your job. But Lysander Spooner came along in 1844 and said that he could lower the rates. And he did. He charged a lot lower prices to deliver mail in these cities. The post office argued that what he was doing was unconstitutional. It said that Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution gave the post office or the Congress the sole right, the sole, uh, the exclusive right to operate a mail delivery business in the United States. Lysander Spooner, however, pointed out that Article 1, Section 8 only gives Congress the power to do it. It doesn't give them the exclusive power to do it. He argued that anyone could run a mail company, not just the United States federal government. However, in 1845, Congress passed a law, obviously disagreeing with Lysander Spooner, that closed some loopholes that had allowed Lysander Spooner to stay in business. So in 1845, Lysander Spooner was forced out of business by the government. However, in the end, he actually won because in 1845, that same law lowered the price of mail, of delivering a letter to six cents. And then in 1851, the price dropped again to three cents. So even though the government forced Lysander Spooner out of business, Lysander Spooner still had the last laugh because he was instrumental in forcing the government to lower the rates of mail to something much closer to what we pay today. So when we pay for stamps at the post office, remember Lysander Spooner, he may have had just a little bit to do with lowering that price. 
Now, I ask you, what better example could we ask for of an actual historical instance of that argument that we've often heard that free market will improve on the inefficiencies of a state-run monopoly? Well, a lot of people have theorized about this, and we still hear debates about it in various sectors of the economy, even down to our own day and age when it comes to things like healthcare. But there in the 1840s was someone who was willing to very much put his money where his mouth was and to actually create a business into direct competition with the U.S. government and its monopoly-run service, the U.S. Postal Service, and to demonstrate the fact that he was able to greatly improve on the inefficiencies of that postal service and to greatly reduce the price at which people could send letters to each other in various cities. And it is... Perhaps ironic, but certainly not surprising that it was very much his own success that led to his downfall in this enterprise because, of course, the government could not be made fools of and they could not be demonstrated to be so massively corrupt and inefficient. So they saw his success as a threat and uh, accordingly, basically, they litigated him out of existence. And it is unfortunate that even though he had prepared and even published a pamphlet to argue on the unconstitutionality of the laws by by which the U.S. government presumed to be able to institute their postal monopoly on the peoples of America, he was never actually able uh, to litigate out those claims of unconstitutionality because he went bankrupt long before he could reach that stage of the legal system. Basically, the government had deeper pockets than he did and were able to keep him in that legal loop long enough to make sure that his claims never really saw the light of day. So, unfortunately, although he did prove his point and... Ultimately, the U.S. Postal Service did have to clean up its act at least a little bit and did drastically reduce the prices at which it was delivering letters, at least in the cities where he was operating. Uh, unfortunately, at the end of the day, he did end up losing in the, I, I guess, in or the personal sense. Certainly, he lost his business and any possible wealth that he could have generated from it. And it was a vastly, really popular commercial uh, success, and probably the only commercial success of his entire career. But, uh, but again, it's quite ironic that it was the state that literally came in and stopped him from being successful. But at, at, at any rate, Lysander Spooner being such a driven personality, of course, that was not the only uh, big uh, issue of his day that he inserted himself into the middle of, and it was not certainly the last time that he had a large effect on the societal conversation that was going on around him. And what was happening in the middle of the 19th century in the United States, but of course the debate about slavery. And uh, Lysander Spooner was a staunch abolitionist, but again, being a free thinker and a firebrand, he came at this from a very different perspective than most of the abolitionists of his day. And there was something of an orthodoxy in the abolitionist movement that was being perhaps best represented by people like William Lloyd Garrison and Wendell Phillips at the time, and basically this orthodoxy held that the United States Constitution itself supported the institution of slavery, and thus the, there was this disunionist faction which said that in order to oppose slavery, we have to oppose the union, we have to oppose the Constitution itself, which enforces this, makes it a legal precedent that has to be adhered to. 
And Lysander Spooner came at it from a completely different direction. He said, no, 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 it's not that the Constitution enforces slavery, it's that slavery is nowhere in the Constitution. And if we read the Constitution as the Constitution, just as a contract, and uh, there's more to say on that later, but if we read it just at face value as a contract, there's nothing explicitly in this Constitution which would institute the, the, the process, the idea, the legality of slavery. And this is a very, very important point and not a light one at all. And Lysander Spooner came at this from the viewpoint of natural law, which is thankfully gaining something of a resurgence in, in the modern era, and hopefully we'll see more of a resurgence in that as admiralty law uh, runs its course and hopefully expires. But that's a topic for another day. Basically, Lysander Spooner's argument was that there is natural law, which has been commonly understood among human beings for uh, just as part of our natural human nature. And because of that natural law, you can come along with a constitution or whatever it may be that presumes to rule over that. But unless you specifically inst- uh, put in, in black and white the institution of something like slavery, we cannot thereby come along and interpret that contract, whatever it may be, the Constitution or whatever, in the light of abrogating some natural law, like freedom, the human being's personal liberty, uh, and saying that doesn't exist because of something we have to read between the lines in this document, or we have to look at the intent of the drafters of this document to understand that they were talking about slavery. He said, absolutely not. If they didn't say explicitly slavery in the Constitution, then the Constitution does not make the case for slavery. It's a very important point, and he had a lot to say on it. Of course, he published a a famous tract, The Unconstitutionality of Slavery, in which he makes this argument, and this is widely available online. I will put a link to it so you can go and read it for yourself, which I highly suggest you do. It's a very important document historically, and even for our own day and age when it comes to these types of topics and how to even look at the Constitution as a document. But in order to draw some of this out, why don't we turn to another um, piece of media from Mises.org. This time we're going to be listening to Thomas E. Woods, of course, the the author of the Politically Incorrect Guide to American History and many other uh, tracts besides, who has been a previous guest on the Corbett Report. And he uh, was delivering a, a lecture series back in 2006 in which he talked about Lysander Spooner, specifically in relation to his abolitionism and his approach to interpreting the Constitution and saying that the Constitution does not, in fact, actually support the institution of slavery. Now, if I may share with you a passage from Spooner. This is from his Unconstitutionality of Slavery, and he says this. To assert that the Constitution intended to sanction slavery is in reality equivalent to asserting that the necessary meaning, the unavoidable import of the words alone of the Constitution, come fully up to the point of a clear, definite, distinct, express, explicit, unequivocal, necessary, and peremptory sanction of the specific thing, human slavery, property in man. If the necessary import of its words alone do but fall an iota short of this point, the instrument gives, and legally speaking intended to give, no legal sanction to slavery. Now, who can in good faith say that the words alone of the Constitution come up to this point? No one who knows anything of law and the meaning of words. Not even the name of the thing alleged to be sanctioned sanctioned is given. Here he's referring to the fact that the word slavery, slavery or slave 
cannot be found in the entire document. The Constitution itself contains no designation, description, or necessary admission of the existence of such a thing as slavery, servitude, or the right of property in man. We are obliged to go out of the instrument and grope among the records of oppression, lawlessness, and crime, records unmentioned and, of course, unsanctioned by the Constitution, to find the thing to which it is said that the words of the Constitution apply. And when we have found this thing, which the Constitution dare not name, we find that the Constitution has sanctioned it, if at all, only by enigmatical words, by unnecessary implication and inference, by innuendo and double entendre, and under a name that entirely fails of describing the thing. Everybody must admit that the Constitution itself contains no language from which alone any court that were either strangers to the prior existence of slavery or that did not assume its prior existence to be legal could legally decide that the Constitution sanctioned it. And this is the true test for determining whether the Constitution does or does not sanction slavery. That is, whether a court of law strangers to the prior existence of slavery or not assuming its prior existence to be legal, looking only at the naked language of the instrument, could consistently with legal rules judicially determine that it sanctions slavery. Every lawyer who at all deserves that name knows that the claim for slavery could stand no such test. The fact is palpable that the Constitution contains no such legal sanction, that it is only by unnecessary implication and inference, by innuendo and double entendre, by the aid of exterior evidence, the assumption of the prior legality of slavery, and the gratuitous imputation of criminal intentions that are not avowed in legal terms, that any sanction of slavery as a legal institution can be extorted from it. Well, that is, if, if at some length, that is his rule of interpretation. And again, if you were to say to him, but what about the intentions of so-and-so and, and this and that person behind closed doors when they drafted it or when they approved it, here is one of Spooner's replies. He says, any 40 or 50 men, like those who framed the Constitution, may now secretly concoct another that is honest in its terms and yet in secret conclave confess to each other the criminal objects they intended to accomplish by it if its honest character should enable them to secure it for the adoption of the people. But if the people should adopt such a constitution, would they thereby adopt any of the criminal and secret purposes of its authors? Or if the guilty confessions of these conspirators should be revealed 50 years afterwards, would judicial tribunals look to them as giving the government any authority for violating the legal meaning of the words of such constitution and for so construing them as to subserve the criminal and shameless purposes of its originators. Well, as you and I know, as history bore out, it was not ultimately arguments about the unconstitutionality of slavery that led to the abolition of that institution. But certainly those arguments are very interesting for our day and age and all of the, the, the problems we have right now of interpreting the Constitution and how best to do that and whether we need to look back at the, the intent of the founders and how they drafted the documents and the arguments they were having at the time and what they wrote in their personal diaries, etc., etc. Well, here's a very, very radically different view on all of that with Lysander Spooner coming along and saying, no, we have to interpret it based on natural law and only what is explicitly laid out in black and white that uh, in any way modifies that natural law should be taken as what this document intends to achieve.
So that is in and of itself a very important thing, and I don't want to dumb down the argument in any way. It's it's a very important argument that he lays out in a lot of detail in that uh, unconstitutionality of slavery. So once again, I will ask you to go and start reading that for yourself. I think it is still a very important document to take a look at. But let's move on to the next step in Lysander Spooner's intellectual development, assuming that we can frame it in that regard as, as stepping up towards uh, a higher level of argumentation. We saw uh, perhaps a little bit of the, the dissolution of youthful idealism when it came to the, well, the bankruptcy of the American letter mail company back in the 1840s, and then the fact that it was not arguments about unconstitutionality of slavery that ultimately led to the abolition of that institution. So one can imagine a certain, well, a growing skepticism amongst uh, people like Spooner that it's really arguments about the Constitution that will ultimately change the minds of people. In fact, it seemed that the document, this document, the Constitution, was simply being used as a blunt instrument to beat over the heads of the opposition of those who would actually threaten the, uh, the power of the government. And it was perhaps in this regard, and I don't want to, again, read too much into the biography, but perhaps some of these inf uh, these experiences informed his growing awareness that it is, in fact, the Constitution itself is not some shining document that uh, has to be held in regard. In fact, he started to approach it as just a contract. And if it is a contract, contract can only feasibly and legally be held to, to uh, over the people who are actually signatories to that, that contract. And I, I don't know about you or me or Lysander Spooner, but, but my name isn't on that document, and I'm sure your name isn't on it either. So, um, so that document, why should it have any sway over you? Well, of course, uh, Lysander Spooner lays this out in much greater degree of rigorous detail in a series of pamphlets that he published in the 1860s and early 1870 called No Treason. And uh, there were a number of these that were published, and the most famous of those was number six, the Constitution of No Authority. So if you take nothing else out of today's episode of the podcast, I hope you will at least take this piece of advice, this exhortation, please go back and actually read this document. It's extremely important, and it lays out in very precise detail why all of the arguments that are commonly given for why the government should have any authority over the people at all tend to fall flat on their face. And all of these arguments ha about how this is this is not a system of coercion, or if it is, it's, it's one that's entered into voluntarily, or all the types of arguments that statists like to give for why the state has any authority over the people. Well, how, how those fail to stand up to basic logical rigor. And he does this in incredible style and with, with very, very interesting arguments. And again, I don't want to dumb them down or, or make them uh, pat and neat for the purposes of this uh, this podcast and to fit them into the time frame that we're, we're dealing with today. So I will not do that, but I would be remiss in my duties if I did not include some sample from this work. So I think uh, this analogy that we're going to listen to from section three of number six of No Treason, the Constitution of No Authority, is particularly apt in our own day and age. Sadly enough, I think it still is a very good description of the state, where he analogizes the uh, the state to a highwayman, but actually compares the highwayman favorably to the government, because at the very least, the highwayman is honest about what he is doing. The payment of taxes being compulsory, of course, furnishes no evidence that anyone voluntarily supports the Constitution. 1. 
It is true that the theory of our constitution is that all taxes are paid voluntarily, that our government is a mutual insurance company, voluntarily entered into by the people with each other, that each man makes a free and purely voluntary contract with all others who are party to the constitution. To pay so much money for so much protection, the same as he does with any other insurance company, and that he is just as free not to be protected and not to pay tax as he is to pay a tax and be protected. But this theory of our government is wholly different from the practical fact. The fact is that the government, like a highwayman, says to a man, Your money or your life. And many, if not most, taxes are paid under the compulsion of that threat. The government does not indeed waylay a man in a lonely place, spring upon him from the roadside, and holding a pistol to his head, proceed to rifle his pockets. But the robbery is none the less a robbery on that account, and it is far more dastardly and shameful. The highwayman takes solely upon himself the responsibility, danger, and crime of his own act. He does not pretend that he has any rightful claim to your money, or that he intends to use it for your own benefit. He does not pretend to be anything but a robber. He has not acquired impudence enough to profess to be merely a protector, and that he takes men's money against their will merely to enable him to protect those infatuated travelers who feel perfectly able to protect themselves or do not appreciate his peculiar system of protection. He is too sensible a man to make such professions as these. Furthermore, having taken your money, he leaves you as you wish him to do. He does not persist in following you on the road against your will, assuming to be your rightful sovereign on the account of the protection he affords you. He does not keep protecting you by commanding you to bow down and serve him, by requiring you to do this and forbidding you to do that, by robbing you of more money as often as he finds it in his interest or pleasure to do so, and by branding you as a rebel, a traitor, and an enemy of your country, and shooting you down without mercy if you dispute his authority or resist his demands. He is too much of a gentleman to be guilty of such impostures and insults and villainies as these. In short, he does not, in addition to robbing you, attempt to either make you his dupe or his slave. The proceedings of those robbers and murderers who call themselves the government are directly the opposite of these of the single highwaymen. In the first place, they do not, like him, make themselves individually known, or consequently take upon themselves personally the responsibility of their acts. On the contrary, they secretly, by secret ballot, designate some one of their number to commit the robbery in their behalf, while they keep themselves practically concealed. They say to the person thus designated, Go to A. B. and say to him that the government has need of money to meet the expenses of protecting him and his property. If he presumes to say that he has never contracted with us to protect him, and that he wants none of our protection, say to him that that is our business and not his, that we choose to protect him, whether he desires us to do so or not, and that we demand pay too for protecting him. If he dares to inquire who the individuals are who have thus taken upon themselves the title of the government, and who assume to protect him, and demand payment of him, without his ever having made any contract with them, say to him that that too is our business, and not his, 
that we do not choose to make ourselves individually known to him, that we have secretly, by secret ballot, appointed you our agent to give him notice of our demands, and if he complies with them, to give him, in our name, a receipt that will protect him against any similar demand for the present year. If he refuses to comply, seize and sell enough of his property to pay not only our demands, but all your own expenses and trouble besides. If he resists the seizure of his property, call upon the bystanders to help you. Doubtless, some of them will prove to be members of our band. If, in defending his property, he should kill any of our band who are assisting you, capture him at all hazards, charge him in one of our courts with murder, convict him, and hang him. If he should call upon his neighbors, or any others who, like him, may be disposed to resist our demands, and they should come in large numbers to his assistance, Cry out that they are all rebels and traitors, that our country is in danger. Call upon the commander of our hired murderers. Tell him to quell the rebellion and save the country, cost what it may. Tell him to kill all who resist, though they should be hundreds of thousands, and thus strike terror into all others similarly disposed. See that the work of murder is thoroughly done, that we may have no further trouble of this kind hereafter. When these traitors shall have thus been taught our strength and our determination, they will be good, loyal citizens for many years, and pay their taxes without a why or a wherefore. It is under such compulsion as this that taxes, so-called, are paid, and how much proof the payment of taxes affords that the people consent to support the government, it needs no further argument to show. Well, I think we can all see from writing like that why Lysander Spooner was certainly a controversial figure in his day and age, but also uh, someone who, at the very least, it can be said, was not willing to, to back down or to be overly diplomatic in the way that he put his arguments. And I think, I think for one, that he makes an extremely valid point there and that there's a lot to, to be taken into account, not only in that section three, but in the entirety of the No Treason document. So once again, please, please go follow the link from the show notes uh, to LysanderSpooner.org to actually read all of the text of that document and to really start to grapple with some of these big ideas of gasp anarchism that, yes, Lysander Spooner started to raise in the, uh, the mid-19th century there in the United States context. And I think, again, this is one of the, the towering philosophical figures in the history of an anarchism that it, it behooves us, whether or not you are an anarchist out there individually, I think it behooves you to actually grapple with some of these arguments and to, to at least start to take a look at them and, and see if you can counter, counter them. And if not, perhaps it might get uh, people spurred into thinking about the government and the way that it acts in a slightly different way. Well, we've talked quite a bit about Lysander Spooner and at least some of the things that he's most well known for. And once again, there's too much to possibly cover in a, an episode like this. But to find out more about Lysander Spooner, I recently turned to Gary Chartier, who is a professor of, uh, of law and business ethics, and he's an associate dean at the School of Business at La Sierra University. He runs a, a blog called uh, liberallaw.blogspot.com, which I will link to in the show notes for today's episode. And he is also a senior fellow at the Center for a Stateless Society at c4ss.org. And the Center for a Stateless Society, obviously, as its name implies, is a, an institution that that advocates for anarchism in, in various forms and has different articles and things on the subject. 
uh, a very interesting resource. I hope people will go and check that out. So I recently turned to Gary Chartier for a conversation about Lysander Spooner, his life, his work, his thought, and his relevance to our own day and age. And you can go and listen to that entire interview, which is now posted up at CorbettReport.com. Once again, the link will be in the show notes. But why don't we take a listen and a look, for those who are watching the video of this podcast, at some of that interview, specifically where I talk to Gary about uh, the, the way that we can situate Lysander Spooner in the philosophical context of his day, and how we can also situate him in the greater conversation about anarchism that survives down to this day and age. And I also ask him a little bit about where people can find more resources on Lysander Spooner. Well, then let's talk about that long-term perspective, because obviously I think something that uh, that all anarchists of all stripes and persuasions these days can agree on is that Lysander Spooner is an important thinker and someone that a lot of people are still content to look back on as, as an important uh, philosopher in that regards. But of course, there are these different branches and flavors of anarchism that still war over various uh, philosophical antecedents, etc. So uh, to what extent do you think we can situate Spooner within that, that matrix, and is it even valuable to do so? Well, uh, what often happens, uh, and I think we can all be pleased by this, uh, what often happens as uh, the past recedes uh, is that ideological divisions start to seem less pronounced and important than they did uh, when uh, a thinker like Spooner was alive and debating. So I think everybody agrees that Spooner belongs in the camp of the 19th century uh, individualist anarchists, uh, but even people who are perhaps more inclined to identify um, with the anarchist strand uh, rooted uh, more in Central and Eastern Europe that, uh, you know, roughly speaking, we can talk about as the, as the contemporary social anarchist uh, strand within the broader anarchist movement. Um, I think the, those folks are quite happy to see Spooner as, uh, uh, you know, a vibrant and important member of the American anarchist tradition. Um, Spooner's uh, IP views, as I noted, noted are uh, sort of radically um, propertarian in a way that, uh, you know, certainly other folks uh, who tend to share the, the Tucker view, and that, of course, includes a lot of contemporary ANCAPs as well as others, uh, wouldn't endorse. But Spooner's overall approach is not typically, I think, going to be dismissed by contemporary social anarchists as a kind of right-wing approach because it was clear that he was a pro-labor guy. He was somebody who was uh, very interested in helping uh, to ease the burden of uh, uh, kind of debt slavery that people experienced. He had, had a very radical view about, uh, about when uh, uh, debt contracts could be enforced and things like that. And so his impulses clearly were not pro-status quo. They weren't pro- um, kind of the, the economic elites of his time. And because of that, uh, because of his radical anti-slavery views and so forth, even though uh, obviously he's a market anarchist, uh, people in the social anarchist tradition, I think, are, are even if they disagree with him, are going to see him as somebody who's part of the broad anarchist movement. And so he, like Tucker, is somebody from that 19th century world who, uh, despite disagreements about their positions among contemporary anarchists, is going to be uh, a source, I think, of connection between modern market anarchists and modern social anarchists. And I, I think that's all to the good. 
One of the things that I'm hoping that this conversation that we're having right now will motivate some of the listeners to do is to actually start reading some Spooner directly instead of ta- listening to people talk about him. So, so in that regards, if there are people out there who are maybe starting to dip their toes into the waters of Lake Spooner, what uh, what works would you actually recommend for those people, or what uh, what do you think they should be concentrating on at this point? Well, so. Uh, one real service that uh, Randy Barnett at Georgetown has done has been to create LysanderSpooner.org, which uh, features a lot of Spooner's work, and people can go there and uh, discover uh, Spooner texts for themselves. Uh, many of those texts, of course, are going to be available elsewhere online as well. I believe uh, Liberty Fund's online library of Liberty uh, features uh, some stuff. So there's a lot to a lot to uh, dip into. Also, uh, Cobden Press. Uh, has uh, begun issuing uh, some some Spooner texts and, for instance, has recently published a collection of Spooner's work on religion, which is uh, uh, probably some of his more obscure stuff. And uh, my friend Jim Perrin, who is the uh, the editor at uh, Cobden, the director at Cobden, uh, has hunted up stuff that uh, uh, really has not been available uh, in the past and cleaned up uh, the uh, the text in the, not to say he's bothering it, but that is he's ensured that the print edition really directly matches the earlier Spooner text in a way that some online stuff does not. So there's a lot of stuff out there. Much of it's online. Um, you know, some things that uh, people might look at, as you rightly pointed out, uh, the Constitution of No Authority uh, is a uh, pretty decisive argument uh, against uh, consent-based justifications for state authority. I think that that continues to be a very live uh, text. Uh, the letter to Thomas F. Bayard uh, uh, contains, uh, again, some passionate anti-state polemic. The, his uh, letter to Grover Cleveland, uh, fairly uh, amusing, I think, if you think about the way in which Cleveland is sometimes lionized by contemporary classical liberals. Uh, Spooner uh, will have none of it and uh, really is very direct in his uh, his condemnations there. You know, those are some of the texts that people often quote the most today uh, and they would be well worth starting with, but I really do encourage people to poke around uh, LysanderSpooner.org and the Online Library of Liberty where you'll find uh, the text of uh, the one complete uh, biography of Spooner that's uh, that's available. I'm not remembering the author's name right now, but also many of Spooner's own texts, uh, all there for free. Uh, and uh, perhaps Spooner himself would be unhappy about uh, the fact that they're available uh, without copyright protection, but he'd be delighted, I'm sure, that you're, you're reading them. Well, once again, that is Gary Chartier of liberallaw.blogspot.com, also a senior fellow at the Center for a Stateless Society. So once again, I hope you will go and listen to that interview in its entirety at corbettreport.com. But that is going to do it for today's whirlwind tour of the life, work, and thought of Lysander Spooner. And if this short uh, introduction to his life and work don't do justice to those who know about it in greater detail, you will, of course, accept my apologies that we are dealing with uh, a a very large subject in a very small amount of time. So at the very least, I hope this serves as an introduction to Lysander Spooner for those out there who are not familiar with his work, or perhaps fills in some of the gaps for those who are familiar with only certain parts of his work. And at the very least, I hope this does spur you on to finding out more about Lysander Spooner and hopefully reading some of his actual writings, which of course is the most important thing that we can do when engaging with a philosophical giant like Lysander Spooner. And once again, if we do see more clearly or see uh, to a greater distance, it's only because we are sitting on the shoulders of giants like Spooner. 
And once again, we will uh, we do perish for lack of knowledge. So it is definitely not something to revel in if we are ignorant of people like Spooner. And so, of course, this podcast always tries to introduce people to to other thinkers and other points of view, and we will continue to do so in the future. And on that note, we're going to leave today's conversation at that point. I would just like to once again thank you all out there for tuning in for another edition of the Corbett Report podcast and reminding all of you that, of course, this is listener-supported media, so if you do appreciate the work that I'm doing here, I do rely on your support. And uh, the best way to do that, I, I think, is to subscribe to the newsletter. And uh, again, for as little as 100 Japanese yen a month, you can get the weekly newsletter, which includes my international forecaster editorial and recommended reading and viewing and discounts on my DVDs and, of course, the once-a-month subscriber-only video. And tomorrow's edition of this uh, newsletter is going to uh, be featuring a wrap-up on Benghazi Gate, which has recently been in the news once again, so you can look forward to that. On that note, we'll leave things there for this week. Thank you for tuning in, and I'm looking forward to talking to you all again very soon. The Corbett Report is brought to you by The Corbett Report Subscriber, a weekly newsletter featuring James Corbett's international forecaster editorial, recommended reading and viewing, discounts on Corbett Report DVDs, and once a month, a subscriber-only video. Sign up today to start receiving your copy at corbettreport.com support.